This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm your host, Daniel Shea, and this is another episode of the focus, All We Mean, an ongoing discussion and debate about how we mean and why. The premise of the podcast is that meaning production and the products of meaning are pretty much everything there is for us humans. As a species, we do not encounter a thought or a thing, not even ourselves, without us going and making meaning with it, or adding meaning to it. Meaning is how we act, as much as it is why we do. And so, the subject matter of this focus reaches into absolutely every quarter of human life, our daily routines, our career paths, our bids to acquire new knowledge, our attempts at connecting with, or at disconnecting from, one another. The format of All We Mean is simple. I open every episode by stating plainly the topic, and then my guests take up this topic to discuss and debate it in the hope that we all might learn something more about meaning. The topic of today's episode is Learning Happens Where There's Meaning. And for that, I'm going to read a passage from a book co-authored by one of my guests tonight, Kit Nichols, and that book is Syllabus, the Remarkable Unremarkable Document That Changes Everything. But first, to my guests, I welcome back Bill Cope and Mary Colanzis, both professors at the University of Illinois. And, of course, for today's program, I welcome to Kit Nichols, director of the Cooper Union Center for Writing and Learning. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello, Daniel. Good to be here. It's very nice to keep talking with you. Great. Yes, I'm happy as well to have all of you here tonight. Um, But... Let's dive right in, right to our topic, Learning Happens Where There's Meaning. To get us started, as I said, I'll be reading a short excerpt from the book Syllabus. A quick note on how uh, the passage is worded, let's say. It's really written to be addressed to a you who's often spoken to there, um, a teacher, a learner, both. In any case, somebody who is making a syllabus. Okay, right, here goes. If you want to see what's really happening with your students, the classroom is just as important a place as their essays or exams. Your syllabus works toward two things. The student alone, as an individual, finding new ideas, abilities, perspectives, and the students together, building knowledge, 
which means building the social learning how to know with one another. You can only just glimpse the first, the student alone, and many students will lock their experience of learning away from you entirely, even if it is happening, even sometimes especially because it's happening. The considered life as a lonely thing, always for us all, for no one else will ever inhabit the bone box of your head. You don't know what's in my head, declares a small child proudly, defiantly. Some years later, the child's father is at work on the book you're reading. This is a problem as old as knowledge itself, and the child's defiant pride becomes a lesson as old as learning itself. But there's that other thing that the syllabus works toward, a quality or condition we might call the knowing among one another. And you can see as much of that kind of knowing as you want to see, at least within the confines of your three hours a week with your students. Here in a school, we can try to learn with one another in the spirit of honesty rather than interest, of truth rather than getting ahead or keeping up. The considered life is a crowded thing, always for us all, for it demands our empathetic engagement with others, other ideas, other ways of knowing. This is the core of learning, and it is knowledge itself. Right, so <laughs> what I really like about this quotation is that it draws up, uh, Bill and Mary, the things that you refer to as representation and interpretation. And it's quite interesting, I think, because that sort of umbrella term, which includes representation and interpretation, is, is called, in, in, in your terminology, participation. So in other words, you do the representing alone and you do the sharing to another person. But the really interesting thing in a learning setting, and this maybe will sort of be our jumping off point, is that all of this is quite mixed there in the learning moment. I mean, isn't every moment of truly understanding something first a sort of rehearsing it to oneself, then following that by a sharing to sort of check that understanding? I guess I drop that out into the <laughs> into the group. <laughs> I'd be curious uh, first to hear from uh, from the rest of you, uh, especially as I haven't had a chance to read your book. So I, I'd love to hear more about your way of framing this set of issues. Okay, so look, I I, uh, I I hadn't read your book until now, to be quite frank. So that's my terrible confession, but I did read it um, with a great deal of interest. And, um, you know, I, I often have this kind of, dismissive view of the syllabus because what the syllabus is for us here at the university is it's um it's a program it's barking a pile of rules to the students it's telling them that on week three they've got to read something or other um and it's a purely textual uh, thing which becomes a pdf and it's therefore kind of once it's out that's it and everybody's on the program and they're on track and by the way the most important thing down the end is uh, if you get more than 70%, I don't know, you'll get a B plus or something. You know what I mean? Grading and a, sets up the rules of the game. And one of the things you did in your book is actually kind of, it's actually an anti-syllabus book. Can I say that? Um, <laughs> That's um, fair. Uh -huh. uh, which is, and one of the reasons why we use the word meaning, which is a broader word, um, is that, that our meanings are social, exactly what Daniel was just saying, representation, which is meaning to myself, communication which is meaning that others might pick up and then interpretation which is never the same as what I meant to myself um, so I that's a very social thing but the other thing we meant was it's bigger than a PDF 
um, which has five pages long and a list of references and uh, assessment requirements. So uh, I think what you've done is you've, uh, if I tell me if I'm wrong, interpreting your book is what you've tried to do is say there's a depth of human activity and there we say multimodal meaning activities, human interaction um, that sit behind a syllabus. So it's the anti-syllabus book. No, <laughs> I think I think there's probably quite a bit of truth in that because, you know, you pick the book up and it's it's not going to give you the thing that you thought you were going to get probably out of a book titled Syllabus. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, I, I I'm interested in uh, to what extent you've talked about uh, meaning as a verb, as you know, the process of um, finding a mean. Um, and, and whether that's come up in these conversations, because I think, you know, there's the, that type of meaning in grading, right, implied by the syllabus. But in the classroom, in the sort of real life moment of learning, there's a really different kind of meaning that's going on, though uh, very much related, right? The, the group is, uh, is kind of finding like a group conscience, right? It's, uh, it's sort of finding its way toward uh, testing out different ideas and seeing where people find some sort of agreement or shared understanding. Um, I like to think about this in terms of reliability, you know, that if, uh, if I'm looking at a particular piece of evidence and I offer an interpretation of it, and if you sitting across from me hear my interpretation and look at that piece of evidence, you have to make a determination, right? Do you, do you think my interpretation is reasonable or do you think it's unreasonable? And, you know, in a classroom, that is what we do all the time. Uh, so I, I am curious to hear whether uh, that type of meaning has has come up for you. Uh, good teachers do what you just described, but a traditional syllabus doesn't generally f- uh, frame up what you've just said, right? And I think that's the point. So I just want to say two things. When we talk about meaning and our two books, Making, Me- uh, Making Sense and Adding Sense, is really... The moment now is different because multimodality is such a large part of how we all make meaning individually and collectively. And that the old traditions and theories that we had about what classroom practice was and what text was and what meaning was has now exploded. So we meant that. That's the first thing. But the second thing, we too, like you, talk about the social mind. The most powerful thing that you could do is create... Uh, mutual understandings, uh, sharing, helping each other. In fact, we grade and the help. You know, one of the things that we grade in our framework, we don't have a syllabus in that sense, uh, is the degree to which people help each other and the value of that help. So the individual who gets it kind of says, oh, well, this was useful to me, it wasn't useful to me, and that we learn together and we teach together. So I think Kit, we're on the same page uh, with that. Uh, where, where, but I do think Bill's point about the syllabus, you're, the, you probably had a, a, a label like that because it's sellable. Everybody wants to have a syllabus. And so you could start with the syllabus and then wander into what really occurs as a consequence of the syllabus. I mean, syllabi here are absolutely mandatory. You have to have them. But as Bill says, they're usually shackles. And, oh. it, and it depends on the design. And I think it, you were talking about that. The designs that teachers have and the repertoires in interpreting what that framework might do, and then looking for genuine meaning in this collaborative social environment. 
Sorry, Bill, you were going to say? Yeah. So I think, are we sort of on the same track there, Kit? I, I, I think so. You know, I, I find myself thinking about the uh, the assignment my students are currently trying to finish. Um and, uh, you know, I've got my fingers and my toes and my eyes all crossed, hoping that they're actually going to pull this off because I've never tried it before. I'm having my students make podcasts and and the podcasts that they're making uh, require that they interview at least two faculty members within our college. And um, you can already sort of start to guess <laughs> where I'm going with that. Uh, and it has everything to do with this question of meaning making together, you know, in a traditional writing classroom or literature classroom, there's this notion that, you know, you're going to quote a set of texts, you're going to organize an interpretation of those texts, and then, you know, lay it out for your reader. And there's a tendency to kind of take for granted what sort of relationship you actually have as the author to the sources that you're quoting. And it, it can become quite dead. Um, and you don't maybe have much of a sense of responsibility to get it right and to honor the contribution that the other people have made. So my, my notion here is that if I make it live, and it sounds a lot like this question of help, um, if you make it truly live, and if you realize, you know, if I misrepresent what one of my other professors is saying, well, okay, now the consequences are very clear. Um, and and it's not just a question of getting it wrong, of course, like the upside to getting it right is so tremendous because now you're the person asking the questions and you potentially have found new avenues for thinking with the faculty. Um, yeah. So it does seem like we're on the same page. Except this... in, in one regard. And this is that your focus on syllabus, although you drift away from it, needs rethinking. Uh, because the two constraints to what you just said is a rigid syllabus and the exam. I remember when we got together to write multiliteracies, you know, creating social futures, Jim G said, none of what we do is going to make any difference because of the high, the exams at the end. So there's two constraints, uh, uh, the high stakes exams or a formal grading in relation to a syllabus or whether you, whether, whether you do it forwards or backwards, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's totally fair to, to think of the syllabus as effectively like legacy media, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean... right, right. And I'm exactly there. And a lot of teachers rely on that and, the, and, and by they the build way, routines do, on do, that. Do you want you know? my, um, my, here's my definition of backward design, which is a bit, Actually, we hadn't heard of this idea. I, I, I laughed myself silly when I first heard it. I thought, no, when we, 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 we came from Australia, and when we first come here, came here, I thought it was the funniest thing. I'd never heard of it. Um, and and, and I, Mary and I then decided it's reverse engineering the test. That was our definition then, which is, you know, this is a country where tests are so darn important, more important than, than well, they're in, it's important in a lot of countries, but here particularly important. It's life and death. It's progress or your book social, doesn't say social that. mobility your or not. book doesn't say no, that. You, it's the opposite you, of what you're yes, saying you say yeah. you have to have a goal and then yeah, you kind of, of get to the goal and you differentiate but our, our gloss yeah. on our gloss on backward design is re, um, I, I, reverse I engineering the test who in their right mind would use those two words together right let me allow let me allow kit's book also to speak for itself literally the first words in the book the epigraph are plans are useless but planning is everything and i think that sets set, sets the exact tone of the book because the plan would of course be 
the syllabus, I think, that Mary and, and, and Bill here are referring to, but the planning is exactly what is going on in the entire book here, syllabus that, that yes. Kit and, and, and Bill Germano uh, together wrote. We call it design. Yes, yeah, design it's, would be the terminology. Right. Like so we don't speak. even use grammar because of those problems. I think that traditional language kind of, um, uh, you know, pins us down. We have to have new language to talk about the sorts of things that you just said you're doing, Kit, with your students. Oh, just to put it across on what Mary said, when we, instead of grammar, which is the, uh, the various forms of textual coherence, if you like, or holding text yeah. together or syntax, you know, we use the word design, which is bigger, which is an action which is the process of fabricating something, of making something. Yes. So we like the word design. So there's no... Yeah. And I, you use that word extensively too. Yeah, and it's a word that has you know tremendous currency where I live because my college does not graduate any humanities majors, right? We only graduate artists, architects, and engineers. And so the language of design resonates with students across the college. And uh, one of the things one has to do as a humanist and as uh, as a writing program administrator at a place like like the Cooper Union is be able to hear your way into the design problems that somebody is working through, regardless of what that discipline is. You know, you've got to be ready to jump into a set of uh, plans and sections that the architects bring in. Uh, or to look at a poster presentation that an electrical engineer is giving you. Um, and that, you know, you have to be always actively designing in relationship to it. But, you know, here's the funny thing. The people in the technical fields and, and pre-professional programs, they often actually have kind of surprisingly limited conceptions of design themselves. Yes, yes you are correct. You are correct. You know, well, actually, uh, I, I dare not say this, but their conceptions may be backward design in the sense that thinking about an outcome as opposed to a process. So, you know, actually, the, the, the great, um, the, the huge shift in design paradigms in software is absolutely fascinating, away from um, what was called Static. waterfall, where, yeah. where, you know, you have um, functional specifications followed by technical specifications, so um, followed by delivery one year later and, and a limited amount of testing, as opposed to agile, where design is this constant you know, mm-hmm. kind of movement and process and, and, and as well. So mm-hmm. that's a, in, in, in the actual design business, that's an, a really fascinating and enormous paradigm shift. Yes. Well, speaking about agile and so on, this is actually probably the key moment, uh, Kit, for you to just say also a little bit more expansively for the listeners as well, not only just for Bill and Mary, um, the work that you do at the Center for Writing and Learning, because um, it was it was that work and also our previous um, talk on this show that really made me think of you for this topic of learning needs meaning. Yeah. So, uh, you know, our, our writing center is both uh, like other writing centers in a lot of ways. And then I, I think also quite distinctive. Um, you know, one thing that distinguishes it is indeed the fact that none of our students graduate with an English degree or a history degree. Um, another piece, though, is that, you know, something like I'd say like 97, 98 percent of the sessions that our students uh, attend our ongoing sessions where they meet with uh, one of our staff members, you know, the same hour every week, and often in many cases for three or four, or even five years straight. And that kind of one-on-one meaning-making work um, is is like you know, uh, Bill and I say in the book, it's like the atomic unit of teaching. You know, you're really able to see what it means to pose the right question, uh, to intervene in a student's process 
rather than just in you know one single utterance, one single project that the student's making, right? The, the change you want to make over time is really in how the student approaches material, uh, so they have a new set of tools. And so you know, in the everyday of uh, of what I do, you know, I, I kind of have to be an academic Swiss Army knife. And uh, I really, I mean, I love I love that work because I have no idea what's going to show up from day to day. Uh, in front of me, you know, students still, uh, though, you know, I have a staff of like 20 people working in the center, students all the time just show up in my office and come straight to me. And uh, that's the work that, you know, kind of keeps me excited to show up every day, the administrative stuff is all right. Um, And the other piece, you know, is figuring out how you get a lot of really, really smart staff members. So we, we only are professionally staffed. Um, we're lucky that we're in downtown New York. So we've got this kind of, you know, huge pool to draw from of um, people with all sorts of academic backgrounds, a lot of PhDs, a lot of MFAs. And you've got to figure out how you're going to help these very smart people learn how to do some very simple, but very complex things, right? Like their, their natural uh, tendency is to make statements, declarative sentences, and to teach people who are already fairly advanced in their academic careers to stop making the declarative sentence and start making the interrogative one is, uh, is, is really rewarding work, but it takes time. Uh, because of course, one has to teach the teachers too. Right. So, um, uh, Benjamin Bloom, you may or may not know this, who's the Bloom's taxonomy person who would ever be problematic for Bloom's taxonomy. I mean, that's another whole story, by the way, the Bloom's taxonomy story. By the way, for which the University of Illinois is partly responsible because we hosted the meeting in 1940-whatever that produced the darn thing. Anyhow, the other he, another interesting thing he, he did, um, another... He had three or four interesting ideas in his relatively long career was the idea of what he called the the, the two sigma problem, um, which is how do you um, how do you do something which is a standard deviation or, or more better than one to one? So if the canonical form of teaching is one to one, right, um, or not the canonical form, if the if the, the most effective and the most powerful and the most form is one-to-one the sort of relationship you're talking about where someone come in and talk to the teacher for an hour is one-to-one how does one replicate that in in a classroom where there are multiple students right because realistically except for affluent institutions and certain disciplines like music education is often one-to-one instrumental music it's it's hard to you know it's best to do one-to-one um and in a way, the syllabus is part of the uh, is a document which mechanizes multiplicity. It it, mass, it produces mass mass production of learning by having everybody on the same page, telling them what what they've got to do, um, programming everything along the way. So in a way, again, this my anti syllabus idea, if you like, is that what you do in the one hour session with one to one with a student is the opposite of a syllabus, which was is designed to industrialize, if you like, um, that knowledge and learning process. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, I'm going to guess this is the kind of answer you um, would hope for and maybe expect. It, it's a design problem, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I your mean, last point, your last point is how do you prepare 
educators or instructors or staff, whatever you call them, to be designers. You know, to kind of, and I think you say this in your book, to know the individual, to know the group, to know the task, and to have an, a, enough capacity and skill to be able to move between those. I mean, we call it repertoires. You know, you need a repertoire. You need to be able to do the one-on-one. -on -one. You need to be able to, uh, you know, kind of move three together or five or whatever. But the, um, the, the book, the textbook, uh, the syllabus, the exam, uh, the the rooms with the chairs in rows, the the artifacts and the architecture that we have uh, kind of produces certain patterns, and it's hard to move those teachers who are effective in controlling behaviour, getting results for the test, to kind of loosen up to do the one the sort of conversation you're talking about or the podcast. And, and that is our, our, our main dilemma at the moment, how we get, how we get institutions to realise that the artefacts and architecture that we are all currently working with are archaic and not useful for the kind of humans that go forward that absolutely need to make decisions together, that do need social minds. As the issues of the world become more and more complex, we need more and more of the social mind, not less of it. And I think it's a big dilemma for all of us. And now with AI and multimodality, we're kind of like rabbits with the light shining in our, in our eyes thinking, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I raise this point with my students every chance I get. You know, why do we take for granted this notion that this thing called a course happens in this place called a classroom. It it takes 15 weeks, right? I mean, all of these assumptions, uh, you know, and you look at the history of education uh, as far back as we can take it. And, um, you know, that that's only been the norm for a certain period of time in a certain set of places. That's right. Correct. And, oh, you, and it, go ahead. Go ahead. Can I, can I be cheeky and modern now? Um, you know, your... Um, your uh, one-to-one uh, -one setup, um, which is the ideal, according to Benjamin Bloom, is the benchmark for all other forms of learning. How close can you get to the results that will um, be produced in a one-to-one -one learning situation? Well, you've got it now, and it's called GPTs. Or Zoom. No, not called Zoom. Zoom, <laughs> Zoom is actually classically oh, the old yes, classroom. Right. It's a pile of tiles, which might as well be seats in a lecture theatre. I'm talking about generative AI, because I'm, I'm, I'm being provocative now, and uh, which is... That's the ideal one-to-one -one future, isn't it? Because every single response is generated um, uh, uniquely for that student, calibrated to exactly what they want, exactly what their needs are, exactly what their interests are, and it's not it's not canned. <laughs> well, so you know the 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 famous pianist Glenn Gould, right? He once yeah. said that in his mind, the ideal artist to audience ratio is one to zero. Ah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's faculty. That's the academic. <laughs> and, I, here, here, and here's the problem: like you know, the the student with ChatGPT strikes me as either one to zero or one to infinity, but it's it's not one to one because, right? The ChatGPT is not really a, a a unified whole of any type. Yeah, I think Bill knows the uh, uh, answer to that. Anyway, I know I know what Bill, I, I know what Bill has written about this, and and the to, to our topic of meaning on the learning aspect of this GPT, there is no meaning on the GPT side to to answer the meaning that the learner or teacher, whichever, right? But let's just say learner is actually looking for. 
right. No, there's not. But also, it can nevertheless be a good interlocutor. So our relationship to this in the work that Mary and I do is actually very, very ambivalent. It's both very, very critical, but also there's something there which is actually quite interesting as well. So it's it, it, we have a complicated ambivalence. So, of course, the, these transformers don't mean a darn thing, but the text they produce can produce dialogue um, which may be useful educationally. Right, Kit, this morning I was walking the corridor, I was thinking about talking to you now, but uh, there was a young, uh, the door open of, of a new faculty member, brand new faculty member, a, a young African-American scholar who's focusing on storytelling for uh, young young African-Americans. That's, that's what she does. So I went in to talk about her, uh, to talk to her about it. And I says, what do you think about the AI coming uh, along now? What do you think that'll do to the kind of storytelling? And of course, we agreed that the corpus doesn't include what these kids are writing for her. And uh, she wants to be creative. But she also said, they don't actually know about the AI yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know how far we're going to go with young ones wanting to harness it for creativity. But she did focus on this idea of, you know, the personhood and the creativity. And then she said, out of the blue, the problem is that the teachers will go to the AI for the syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I have some... That. She says, <laughs> I have some trickster type <laughs> colleagues who like to push the boundaries of what they can submit to administrators that has been created by ChatGPT <laughs> as, as a kind of as a kind of middle finger to the you know neoliberal administrative apparatus or something. <laughs> Actually, one one of the ironies is is because the syllabus is generically so predictable. It produces a really good syllabus. It might have um, fictional references in it. It might be there are all sorts of problems with it, but it looks good. So, and by the way, I've got to confess, this is a terrible confession. When I write up what we want to do in a new course in the format of a syllabus, which we subsequently don't use, um, I write it in a way which, which will get through the university committees. That's right. right. Um, um, but so. we don't use it at all, and nor do we share it with our students. We have Occasionally they, 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 they send us an email saying, could we have your syllabus on file? Uh, we get one of the um, uh, TAs to, to put something together. And by the way, the answer is um, generically it's a PDF. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So ultimately, if you want a reduction in a reductionist sense, it's that's that's ultimately it's. A but Kit, I want to say something else to you about again about what we do. You talked about what you do in your writing centre, but you know we teach only online uh, graduate students, and what we had to crack is the assessment if we were going to humanise what we were doing. And so we put in for a grant and we called it Assess as you go, and then we invented a tool, and this tool has three parts to it. And it says something about our philosophy. One part, of course, is knowledge, right, and meaning-making within a knowledge domain, right? Another part is levels of engagement, which is your point. How do you relate? How are you connecting with other people? And the third part is help. They're graded evenly, right? Help, just, help as in collaboration. Collaboration, Helping peer to peer feedback. And, and, and they can see an astroplot that grows in front of their eyes, uh, the degree to which... Uh, they move up the petals of the astroplot in knowledge, in engagement, and in help. So that says something about a kind of uh, environment, you know, or an ecology uh, where 
help, collaboration and knowledge are mixed in the way that you say is good. And you, you do still have individual work, then you have peer work, and now we've introduced AI feedback. But the AI feedback, you know, so they do their work, their tasks, whatever it is, it could be a lesson plan, it could be um, an, an essay, and then we put in the AI to give them feedback, and then after they get that, we have a human giving feedback on the AI and the human who receives it giving back to it. So we're trying to figure out ways in which it might be useful or to train our edu- or students to figure out how to read it when it's wrong. You and up above the syllabus as well, um, half the syllabus they've made and they make it on the fly. So in other words, we don't say week one, week two, week three, this, that or the other. We have people contributing stuff. So in other words, what we've done is done everything to subvert that darn PDF. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, I've, I've done ranked choice voting uh, for the specific topics to address in the course of a semester. Um, I've co-taught with actual, like with undergraduates who are sort of kind of also in the course. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I'll say that the syllabus I really use is the thing that in the book we call the secret syllabus, uh, you know, which is really effectively the the massive body of notes that I write for myself over the course of the term as I'm learning about what the students need and adjusting what I'm doing, right? Figuring out who can work with each other and who maybe can't. Um, I, I wanted to ask, you know, so I, I love this this conception of, of sort of um, this particular way of rethinking assessment that you're describing. Um, I have a sense that you know, we're running into a kind of Marshall McLuhan-esque uh, limit in in the way that the forms that we've inherited, right, the the academic media, they are kind of the message. So the the classroom, as we you know understand it, with the the teacher standing up at the front, right, it, it you, you can populate that with progressive uh, anything, and you still have this really clear hierarchy, right, and. And so I wonder if, um, and you referred to trying to find a kind of uh, ecological sense of of how the assessment works. Do you do you worry at all about the way that these kinds of um, you know visual graphical tools, you know, you describe them being able to sort of see their their progress, but this involves a certain amount of calculation. And of course, uh, I'm sure you guys uh, know this. And I love to make use of this with my students, right? But economy and ecology share the exact same root, right? They're both ways of conceptualizing oikos or home. And and I think that you know we're in this odd moment of the 21st century. We always have to worry about. Which side of, of that conception of home we're falling to? Are we sort of getting over to the econometric side, or are we trying to hew closer to the ecological side? Where, and I'll say, I think I think the econometric side is largely a question of staying in a, a particular kind of twentieth century mode that is not working for us very well. And the ecological side is more of a twenty first, twenty second century mode where we can picture a good future. So I'm just curious how you how you think about that. I mean, we use the word, we've written a book called E-Learning Ecology. So we use the eco-metaphor, the not the economic metaphor, but the ecological metaphor um, in a quite conscious kind of way. So we're, we're with you on that. Um, one of the problems with the current wave of learning, um, learning management systems, which are, are the core of these technologies, um, is that in a way they're structured like a syllabus. Um, you know, it's week by week. Um, here are the readings, upload your assignment. So in other words, what was in the syllabus has now been operationalized 
unconsciously, I think, by the designers of learning management systems, um, uh, is being opera operationalized um, um, in, into the architecture of learning management system. The other problem, by the way, is what a syllabus and a learning management system does is not it's not so much the plan of action, the timetable or whatever, which if you like is kind of instrumental and pragmatic, it's the art, the classical artifacts that it, that, that it points to. Um, so, you know, read chapter three of the textbook. Okay, what's the textbook? Um, uh, reflect on this lecture, what's the lecture? Um, end of the semester, do the test and you'll get a B plus. Um, so, you know, one of the things that what a syllabus does or a learning management, both of them do, is often they're scaffolding these modern uh, artifacts which are intrinsically problematic and intrinsically actually anti-participatory. They're all kind of anti-participatory in their, in their own kinds of ways. But I was going to say, we educators have to invent new tools and a new language. And uh, partly, and I'm sorry, because all these sessions are truncated, that's what we've done for decades now, tried to invent tools. So we have invented a platform called Common Ground Scholar. You know, we've invented tools. We keep changing the tools. When our students come into our classes, they have to sign an IRB. We're saying, you're joining a research agenda because things are changing and what you we want you to help us figure out how you change them. And every time we bring a new tool in and another tool, and I think some people like us have to be these inventors because we can't just leave the invention to the computer scientists or the engineers in this moment of the digital. We have to invent those tools. Our students come in finding it really hard. They want to learn something off by heart. They want to do the test and they want to get a grade. And it takes about a few weeks or even a few courses for them to figure out that they're not going to succeed in here unless they are collaborating with their peers. I, I think this, this this might be just the time for me as the, the, the as a third as a third party to say something about the work that I do because um, it, it, it matches up so so readily with what you've just said there. Mary, um, I, I, I am, as, as listeners of the podcast will know, someone who helps uh, scientists uh, write their research. And I've done this in a way uh, by more or less taking the writing center um, philosophy and setup and zooming it down to the individual. So I have to admit, Kit, your, your work at the Cooper Union was also an inspiration for how I thought about doing this, especially the long-term relationships that are built between your consultants and and the individual students, because that's exactly how I set it up. And and um, the thing that's going on is these are PhDs or even early career researchers. So in that regard, the assessment has left the table. So in that, in that way, I don't have that problem, but it's not gone. I mean, speaking of artifacts, and this is what just made me think of it, Mary, speaking of artifacts, the first thing that very much happens in my initial meetings is they're looking for the textbooks. They want the answers as to how, you know, the, the IMRAD structure is meant to work and so on. And it's only after the, you know, sort of Socratic method almost of talking to them about, okay, well, what is it that you want to do? What is your purpose in this paper? What is it that you want to achieve over the next three papers and so on that they start to realize, okay, even if there was a framework, it probably wouldn't apply to my work anyway. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it, it, this, this is definitely one-on-one -on -one work. So to get back to Bill's point, yes, uh, that's perhaps the ideal. Although the other thing that I'm looking for is the cascade effect. This has been researched in the area of writing center studies also of, of a writing culture um, sort of 
engendering in a place. And I've had people say to me already that, well, since we know there's an office, you know, room 151 where communication happens, it's suddenly put on the map of this department of computer scientists where communication was was not on their map before that. Well, I seem to have ki- I seem to have killed the discussion. I'm sorry no, about no, that. No. <laughs> I I thought Mary was going to jump in. Um uh but I'm uh, yeah, I I um I think that's fascinating because the the computer scientists, right? They they live in a different type of communication. Um, for one thing, you know, a lot of them, at least, uh, at Cooper, and I'm, I'm going to guess, you know, in Illinois as well, and probably in Germany too, uh, you know, they live on GitHub where code is getting shared left and right all the time. And there are very different ideas about authorship in the world of code than there are in regular prose. Um, so, so, you know, sort of building these systems of communication, uh, among them and you, and ideally then eventually, right, uh, among all of the people who are writing, not just between you and them, but among them, um, could be quite radical, really. Um, so I, I I do kind of wonder sometimes, uh, you know, you were, uh, I think it was Bill who was pointing at the resource in- intensiveness of the one-on-one model. And um, I'll say also, right, because writing centers, we don't, we don't grant credit hours. Therefore, yeah, assessment as traditionally understood doesn't really happen, right? Not in the context of individual sessions, at least. Um, and, uh, and when you're working, especially with like a professional writer, I mean, we, we, have, um, we have faculty members come to us for help uh, trying to develop scholarly papers of various types that they're trying to finish. And indeed, also there, right? we're not going to give them an A or a B at the end of uh, a set of sessions, right? The um, the intrinsic sort of nature of of uh, the project is is pretty straightforward for them. And the question is always how we build that for the students. And then, and I think maybe this whole conversation sort of boils down to this: how does that move into actual curricula? Because you know we're we're left with these legacies of. Um, you know, accreditation systems, and don't get me wrong, accreditation is great in a lot of ways, <laughs> but, you know, it can also be quite limiting. So, um, uh, so I'm kind of curious, you know, when we, if we think big picture about how we achieve these changes over time, I, I don't know how we get there. So, Kit, it, we've been thinking exactly the same thing. And one of the ways in which we've dealt with it is to talk about the affordances of the digital Right, because we are in a very particular moment which allows you to be able to learning, you know, metacognition, uh, feedback, you know, we have seven or eight, you know, uh, kind of affordances. And we say to our colleagues here, these tools that you're using, which of these affordances do you use? And at the moment, they don't use any of them because they replicate the past. So what we did is try to invent the the tools and I, I i heard on your podcast you just the way we laughed at backward design you laughed at f- flipped classrooms but <laughs> you know 
part of the solution is that that content knowledge within the learning can be in the flipped classroom environment. And what you do when you're face to face, particularly in, in a digital environment, where you the, the students talk and they talk to each other, and you have it, it's kind of like what we're doing now. Uh, they're recordings. You also have one on ones that follow up after that. You have to have a different paradigm altogether about how you uh, engage and what the the artifacts that they produce they're all available to them in a portfolio so they can take them with them you know because they're all digitized for you know from from the very beginning so we are looking at different ecologies but human ecologies yes we have to render to caesar in the end we have to put a grading right we have to find all that work that they do has to be aggregated and something put in there but we don't stick within the timeline of the uh uh, of whatever the course is, we say, well, when you finish, you finish. If you can't finish, it's okay. We'll give you an incomplete. And we understand life is hard. And when you're ready, we'll give, we'll give you a grade. So it's kind of blowing up all that stuff, right? Because the affordances of the digital allow it to happen. And educators have seen the digital as the devil. You know, they've kind of avoided it. They haven't designed it. The tools that are there are terrible. So we just bit the bullet so to speak and said no we have to invent these tools and they have to have our values and they have to be humanized not just information transformation uh, transmission you're putting your finger right on the essential problem i mean you know our our campus is a a microsoft campus which means that our lms is right is is microsoft teams which is Do you, do, you, do, you, do you want to hear the joke about why um, why, why um, Sam Alderman went back to um, um, Open AI? The joke tells itself, but go ahead. He went to Microsoft and the first thing he had to do was open Teams. <laughs> yep. I yeah. know they're, they're first generation. I know everybody says that COVID made a difference, but at the point of COVID, all we had is again now what is now legacy digital tools Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we have moved way beyond that and the affordances are the way to address it right what what are the affordances and how do we utilize them you know whether it's uh, sorry bill you were going to say something go ahead no back to you back to you kid yeah back to you kid (laughs) (laughs) fair um i you know i i guess i find myself wondering so when when you picture your your average faculty member, um, you know, at a smaller college, and of course, uh, as much as we do have a lot of giant R1s around the US and, you know, equivalents in places like Germany, for sure, um, a lot of us teach at smaller institutions. The Cooper Union is, um, by one measure, very wealthy and by another, very poor, which is, you know, the the issue is we're on our way to... Um, uh, to full tuition scholarships for all of our students again, which we lost about 10 years ago. Um, and what that means is that, you know, as much as if you look on paper, the endowment looks pretty large in truth, uh, when you're, you know, aiming not to collect any tuition dollars, well, those numbers have to be really large. Um, and so, you know, for a smaller institution, I mean, I absolutely agree that sort of figuring out how to produce the digital tools ourselves is the right way, because as long as we accept, uh, the Microsofts and Googles of the world as the the people who are going to give us 
our educational models effectively, right? They're going to create the media and therefore they are going to shape the message. Um, but, but, you know, if you don't have the resources in place, what do you do? Because, uh, and I also will add to that, I, you know, I think that um, for teachers to feel fully empowered and to be able to do their best work, we really need a lot of space to make things up and test things and screw up, right? And try again. And so the potential barriers to entry for this kind of, of digital design that you're talking about seems like, I'm sure you've been thinking about it. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say. But the, 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 a very, very simple response, right? Is that one teacher, 30 kids doesn't work. We have to collaborate. We have to team teach. We have to have more than one person in that space. And to allow us to design and co-design uh, with our with our students, with ourselves, we have to break away from the God teacher with the with the X number of students. We cannot continue, given the affordances of the digital, given the complexity of identities and what learners bring to any particular environment to go with that model, the one teacher. I mean, that required authoritarianism, right? It required standards. It required, you know, these kind of uh, constraints to control behavior because the one teacher couldn't cope, right? It also invites that as well, because, I mean, you you, you put you put one person in front of 30 others and say you two sets of people are different Then obviously (laughs) you you put the you put the teacher in this inferior position in a sense. I mean, one thing that keeps that keeps coming to my mind as I as I listen to you talk and, and this word of help, which which we we've spoken about quite a lot. I mean, if if you think of education and, and, and the response during COVID and the general reluctance to take up digital media in a way that would have been constructive is, is definitely telling here. If you look at the education setting as being a place that, you know, they they think of four walls around them and it's not necessarily a continuous place that leads out into real life. Well, then obviously that's not a learning that has meaning to bring us back into into the center of our topic in the same way as like my setting of science and research, I mean, help is the norm. You know, people look at scientists as being competitive and they're fiercely competitive, but they do nothing without collaboration. I mean, they don't even make tea together without collaborating. <laughs> it's, it's just all give and take. And, and, and that's why, you know, for instance, again, back to my program, it, it, there's a pretty quick take uh, uptake of all of it because of the fact that, ah, okay, so you're, you're collaborating with us. Oh, I get it. Okay. You know, and then I, it just rolls. We can say these things to each other, but they're very hard. I, I spent 10 years here as a dean trying to kind of inculcate some of these values. But when we have a promotion process, which wants individual author, individual work, you know, it goes against the grain of collaboration. And uh, the way we employ people, we employ them to take certain classes. I mean, I begged to co-teach, and particularly in America now around these issues of diversity, which are so fraught. It's like the Maginot line. We're on either side of the line, you know, digging deep and throwing arrows at each other. I said, why don't we teach together? Why don't we teach these courses, you know, with different people together and, and see how the students see that there are different opinions and arguments and disagree. No, nobody was going to do it because the career pathway has constraints to it. And doing that does not... So there's, 
see, there are sorts of things you have to break down. Yes, we need to talk these things. Yes, we need to write the kinds of books that we write. But we also need to be aware that you need kind of structural and systemic changes. And that's, I don't know, who do we bring in to do that? Uh, who do we partner up with? Ooh, that's a that's a really hard question. I mean, I, I I'd go even farther and say it's it's a communitarian problem, right? I mean, it's a question of how faculty imagine themselves and exactly. how they imagine the students. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It is quite you are quite correct about, about that. And all our uh, conferences and you know individual papers and networking and you know everything is about individual the individual becoming famous and the individual voice. Whereas I don't think that we can sustain that into the future productively or save the planet or each other. <laughs> agreed. A hundred percent agreed. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I am deeply concerned that we are teaching students f- not for the future, but for a, a past that's already over and we just haven't realized it yet. Oh, absolutely. So that's the next book we'll have to write together, Kit. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> All right. Well, on, on the note of collaboration, uh, maybe closing out um, again, Kit, I, I didn't warn you on this, but what, what we like to do is each person gives their takeaway from the discussion. So I'll just pass it around the the room. Um, if we come back to our topic of learning happens where there's meaning. Mary, what do you take away from our discussion today? I think we are making meaning in these conversations with each other, uh, on your podcast, uh, with people in the corridors, with our students. We've got to keep making that meaning, even though it goes against the grain, even though it might seem impossible at this moment. And then we say, what can we harness? What, like, how, how can we harness what's available to us? And of course, at the moment, the digital is available to us. So how do we make it work for those human values of collaboration and sociality and the social mind? And, uh, you know, we, in America, at least, which is a leader in the world, there's no systemic ways of changing the world. We just co- it's viral. So in our small spaces, if we can do something that somebody else wants to copy, and you've already demonstrated that in this conversation, that's kind of the way in which we get the ball rolling uh, at this point in time. And Bill, how about yourself? Yeah, well, look, from me, I mean, one of the things we're actually, t- at root, what we're talking about in this conversation is some very old values. Uh, we wouldn't disagree with much with Rousseau. We wouldn't disagree much with John Dewey. We wouldn't disagree much with Maria Montessori. If you want to take some of the greats of education, uh, Paolo Freire, we wouldn't want to disagree with. So we're talking about some old values, but the, the reality is they haven't been realised. They might be in small spots of time um, uh, for some of us sometimes in moments of idealism and extremely hard work. Um, and the question just kind of reiterating what Mary said, is there an opportunity for us now with these new media, these digital technologies, um, to build structures of participation? If our key word is participation, which is how did we build these collaborative participatory environments, um, can they help us do it? Or will they make things worse? Some, a lot of time they make them worse. So that, that, that's our dilemma. Ooh, there's a lot to chew on there. Um, uh, you know, I'm... I, I'm thinking about form. Uh, you know, I find myself coming from this conversation thinking uh, about forms from the very micro level to the the one-on-one conversation between a teacher and a student. 
um, or you know, uh, a relatively micro level, uh, the the four of us um, speaking in three different locations um, and two continents. Um, and I, I am absolutely, you know, with Bill and and also with Mary on, on the the sense that it will take constituencies forming over time. And a lot of it is just sort of gradual cultural communicative work to, to make these changes. But I think, you know, some kind of radical reframing, which, which maybe the digital gives it to us, but, you know, I'm also always anxious about, yeah, the, the unexpected places that we might land sometimes with, with, uh, with forms. Um, But I find myself really wondering you know, how do we create these kinds of um, uh, public works projects, right? I, I tend to try to reject the word infrastructure because that's a, it's a Ronald Reaganism and a Margaret Thatcherism, um, right? It got, got rid of, you can do a Google Ngram plot and then look at the difference between the usage of uh, public works versus infrastructure. So how do we imagine a kind of educational public works that that transcends place, yes, but that also transcends a lot of the economic forms that we tend to accidentally take for granted as part of a lot of digital platforms. Right. Yeah. yeah right. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, maybe also quickly, my own uh, take. I, I would like to pick right up there with the communitarian problem that, that you were talking about there, Kit. Um and that we need some sort of a breakthrough, you know, that people understand, well, the meaning is, is, is what is it that I want to do here? Um, you have this excellent line, which I couldn't locate in your book about, hey, the learning is about what we leave behind. And I find that that might be a way of reframing the, you know, the academics or the teacher's own community and say, it's not what we bring in. You know, it's not all that learning and all of that study and those qualifications and degrees. It's what we leave behind. And that might refocus the entire community's, you know, purpose toward a different end of the process instead of toward the beginning and what it is that we know. It's it's what we're learning as we go along and where we get to with uh, the people that we're teaching. Right. Anyway, my guests uh, today here on the show were uh, Bill Cope, Mary Colanzis, and Kit Nichols. I'm Daniel Shea signing out until next time here on All We Mean. (laughs) 